You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. Thank you so very much for being here and for taking the time to listen. I do sincerely appreciate it and uh, looking forward to catching up with everybody again. So uh, thank you for all the kind emails and messages and everything I've been getting lately and all the reviews, good, bad, or indifferent. I won't won't talk about that, but uh, I do always enjoy catching up with everybody and hearing, hearing what's going on, so keep them coming. Oh, so I guess I'll kind of start off with a uh, little bit of an apology here. I think I definitely owe you that. Um, I did disappear a bit abruptly. Um, It wasn't my intent. And uh, had I known that things were kind of going to go the way they did, I would have probably put a message out, kind of let you know ahead of time, finished up the winterization episode, which I desperately wanted to have done back in the September time frame. So I kind of dropped the ball there. So again, I do apologize. Um, you know, it's a combination of so many different things going on. I would say some of them were personal, some professional, some physical, mental, a whole lot of different things kind of going on. So, uh, you know, we just, uh, we suck it up, we drive on and we keep keep moving forward. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be back in the saddle again here and get back to a more more regular routine. We have a lot to talk about. So I want to get into the uh, the winterization. This is kind of a big deal, and uh, it's I feel so bad because it is one of the most important things you've worked all year long. You know, getting the colony, getting them established, taking care of them, getting through the summer, and uh, and then you get towards the end of the year, and you know if you if you make mistakes going into the off season here, you know it can be devastating. It can be kind of fatal. So I. I think I've mentioned before, I, you know, first couple of years, I lost colonies pretty much every year. 
you, you buy two, you lose one. And then the next season you buy one or two more, you lose one or two. And you, you know, you're kind of always trying to figure out what to do. And then you come up with a formula that works. And, you know, I think now I'm not losing, I'm losing, you know, a couple of percent of my colonies every year. And the reality of it is that genetically speaking, some of them just aren't going to make it, you know, I mean that's just the reality of the world. When we talk about all the traits that we look for, you know, in the colony, and I've reviewed these traits many times, but, you know, overwintering is really a big deal, right? You can have a colony that is very, very productive, you know, good, good nature, good temperament, um, you know, produces a lot of honey, very hygienic, everything, you know, all the things that we look for and they can't overwinter. That, that's a big deal. So I think probably the best way to attack this is uh, we'll kind of start with some, some generic info here, right? And, and you guys are probably really sick of me saying this, but this is another area where a bee club or a local beekeeper you know can really make a big difference. I can tell you everything that I do every year, and you'll send me an email in the spring, and you say, Jeff, my, my bees died. And... I say, oh, God, I'm really sorry to hear that. You know, where are you? And you're like, oh, you know, I'm up in Montana. I'm like, yeah, you know, things in Montana or North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, it's going to be a lot different from what we do down in Georgia, Alabama, you know, Texas, Florida. So that in mind, there are things you, you should do across the board no matter what, and there are things you should not do across the board no matter what. I'm just going to kind of go through. We're going to start kind of bottom up. And then from there, we'll discuss a couple of things to kind of keep in mind and, and kind of hopefully put it all together by the time we get to the end. So one thing I want to start with is the most important thing. And the thing that kills more bees than anything at all is, is moisture, water. You have a situation where the bees are clustered inside the colony. So they form a little cluster and they maintain a temperature kind of in that like 96, 97 degree kind of range and, th and that's how they are able to survive the winter. Now, think about winter conditions, right? Maybe it's 40 degrees, maybe it's zero degrees. Or if you're, you know, on the metric system, you know, maybe, maybe it's somewhere like around 10 degrees or maybe it's negative 20, you know, uh, Celsius. So the temperatures are going to vary, but either way, it's cold outside. So when you have the cold of the outside meeting up with the warmth of the, the you know, the sides of that hardware, that beehive, there's going to be just naturally, there's going to be some condensation. And what ends up happening is that condensation, you know, as the heat will kind of rise off the colony, the condensation will form typically at the top. That in and of itself isn't the end of the world. It's when that condensation drips down on the bees. Wet bees are dead bees. I mean, it's as simple as that. So controlling that moisture and, and providing some level of ventilation is critically important. Now with my hives, the entrances are open year round. I will typically do the roughly like the three-quarter to one-inch entrance. That's not really a hard and fast rule. I've got several colonies that I've, you know, they've, they're very healthy. They're very strong. I throw a mouse guard in. And I say mouse guard. I, I take some hardware cloth that I showed in one of the videos I did. Take the hardware cloth, cut it about, th you know, three inches um, high by about 16 inches wide or so, and just kind of stuff it into the hole that is the entrance. And that's my mouse guard. But anyway, fully open, halfway closed, you know, one inch. It, that part doesn't really matter. You need ventilation. You need air to come in. What I would say is if you are in an extreme climate, you, know, you probably want to bring that down to be a little bit smaller. 
But the reality is I, I know that there are be you know professional beekeepers who are keeping the entrances open year round and it's not an issue. Uh, I've got right now I'm overwintering. Uh, it's a four frame over four frames, so it's those uh, smaller nukes. Four over four, eight total frames. I'm overwintering them right now. And uh, all I did was I dropped a block of wood. You know, it's just like a three-quarter by three-quarter inch block of wood that's about four inches long. I dropped it right on the little entrance of the hive. I left about a one-inch opening. And that, you know, I'm like, yeah, that'll be fine. I'll leave it alone. I don't know what happened. I mean, I don't know if it... I can't. I guess it had to have blown off. There must have been a big breeze because they didn't have time to kind of propolize it in place. And I went there the other day and was looking at it, and it was on the ground. So I picked it up, set it back down, and that's that. But they were fine. You know, it was a 60-some degree day in January, which is relatively, well, it's not uncommon here in the mid-Atlantic to get a couple of those oddball days in the middle of the winter where it gets in the 60s or 70s. But generally speaking, that's a little bit unusual. But they were out. They were flying. You know, they're doing what they got to do, and uh, you know, everything was fine. So... You Like I said, you want to have some ventilation. You want air to come in. And you also, I mean, I have top ventilation as well. So you want air to circulate, you know, from the bottom. And, and for me, I do it from the top as well. I have that, you know, the top section that I've told you about several times. And it's it's just basically about three inches high. It's got the, uh, you know, the hardware cloth all the way around it. And then I put a piece of the foam insulation that's probably about two and a half inches thick in that whole area. It helps to kind of absorb some of the, the condensation. And it provides ventilation as well. So fresh air is important. I bring all of this up around the fresh air piece because, you know, bees are so, they're pretty resilient. I mean, they're, they're tough. You know, as long as they're not dealing with disease and infection and some of those types of things, they're very adaptive and, and they're, pretty, uh, they're pretty resilient. But there are certain things they just can't tolerate and they, they can't get wet. So aside from condensation inside the hive, there are some other things that we want to be mindful of. And I would say two things that, that I hear a lot, I get a lot of questions about. One of them is snow. People always ask me, like, hey, what if it snows? Will my bees suffocate? That's a common question. And the other question is, hey, if it's a really nice day in the, in the wintertime, and again, like I mentioned the other day, I honestly, I think it broke 70 degrees. And they say, well, if it's nice and warm like that, is there anything wrong with me doing an inspection? Let me hit the first one with the snow. Now, I have not experienced this myself because... I've always been beekeeping in the mid-Atlantic, but I do know, you know, if you look up north, you know, I, and I talk about this guy all the time, you know, Michael Palmer, I think it's French Hill Apiary, I believe. He's up in Vermont. You can Google him. He's a, he's been beekeeping for, you know, about three or four decades, super sharp guy, but he shows pictures all the time of his colonies, you know, under two or three feet of snow. So what I would tell you is again, the same thing, right? If you have some level of ventilation, you're not going to have an issue. Now, one challenge that I, I've heard about is where you end up getting some melting so that you know, it snows, it melts a little bit, kind of refreezes, and then it actually kind of seals everything up. One thing you could do pretty simply would be to maybe lean a piece of plywood or a piece of board you know, at an angle in front of the entrance, up near the entrance, so that way the snow falls down, it kind of you know, moves down away from the, the entrance, and, and that might help keep things open. But again, you know, know your area, know what you're up against, and you know, there's, there's things you can do to kind of mitigate that. I would tell you not to worry too much about snow. As long as there's a little bit of ventilation and the bees can can get some fresh air in, they're going to figure things out. It's going to be fine, right? Having a little bit of top ventilation, the entrance open, and you'll be fine. I've heard stories, and again, right, 
you don't know all the circumstances and the details just from a post that you read or someone that you maybe talk to. But I've heard stories of, you know, oh, I, I lost my entire colony or I lost multiple colonies because they suffocated. I, w- I would kind of want to know more about this setup and how they had everything configured and what they did. I mean, you don't want to seal. You definitely do not want to seal the bees and you got to have fresh air coming in. So going on to that second question, you have a nice, you know, sunny day in the in the wintertime. Can I open up the hive? We talked pretty extensively, you know, early in, early on in the season about propolis and the purpose of it, right? This is what the bees use for everything in the hive as far as coating it, protecting it, kind of keeping things clean, sealing things up. And one thing that they're going to do is as you place those hive bodies on, and I'm sure now that you're through your first season and you've stuck that hive tool in, you're trying to separate those hive bodies, you know exactly what propolis is now, right? Because everything is just sticky and gooey. And, you know, when you finish for the day, especially if you're not using gloves, it, you know, your hands are just propolized kind of for the next day or so. But that propolis has many, many purposes within the colony. But one of the biggest ones is to seal up, you know, cracks and things. Like I had a colony just last year. I had forgotten to put an entrance reducer on. And I was like, oh, geez, I didn't even put that on there. It was a smaller colony, and I wanted it to be about an inch, inch and a half, you know, going into the winter. And I I just forgot about it. It was a strong colony. I wasn't too worried. But I, I just wanted the entrance to be a little bit reduced just to make sure that they were... You know, they were able to defend the entrance and everything. And the next season, in the spring, I moved them to a different setup. And when I took everything apart, they had propolized probably three and a half, four inches across the front. They're just like a row, like a stack, you know, completely blocking the entrance for about three and a half or four inches. So if, if they have to seal it up themselves, they will. But the thing is, if you remember in the summertime, the propolis is kind of sticky and gooey. When it gets really cold, it, it's uh, very brittle. So you hit the hive tool on it. Like if you're cleaning up equipment in the off season, it's really easy to get propolis off. It just kind of breaks off. Uh, it's definitely different from what you experience in the summertime where it's, you know, again, it's really gooey. If you separate the hive bodies on that nice hot day and you're looking at things, everything looks good, and, and you're trying to figure out what you might want to do to help them out if you see something you don't like, and then you put everything back together, you've created a lot of little cracks. Now, to you, might not be obvious, but to the bees, especially when that wind is blowing and they get a nice breeze, it's going to come through there and it's going to make them cold. It's not going to be sealed up. So I would say, generally speaking, don't mess with them. If you've done everything that you should have done going into the winter, at this point, you're not going to help them. There's not a lot that you're going to be able to give them or do for them either way. And yes, it is possible that if you had some concerns and some doubts or worries, you could maybe throw a pollen patty in or do something like that. But, you know, you're not going to throw sugar syrup in in the middle of the winter. You're definitely not going to do that. There really isn't going to be a whole lot that you're going to ha- you're going to be able to do, that you're going to be able to intervene and that will make a difference. I would say if you felt that you just, you just had to see what's going on, you were really worried, you were concerned, it was a nice sunny day, three of your colonies were going nuts and the one was just kind of a couple of stragglers coming out here and there and you were worried about them. There is a little trick. You do your inspection, you open things up, you look around. If you want to put, you know, put a pollen patty in or do whatever you think you need to do to, to help them out. When you close everything back up and you put it back together, I've done this before and it's been pretty effective. Get yourself a roll of duct tape. I don't mean like your standard regular, you know, duct tape that you get from the, 
um, hardware store for like, you know, attaching anything and everything to other things, you know, like the big roll of sticky tape. I mean, the tape that you would actually use to, you know, seal up ductwork. So it's going to be the, the real shiny tape that's usually about like two inches or sometimes they have the larger three or four inch pieces. But all you need to do is get that kind of reflective duct tape and you'll cut, you know, cut a piece that will cover, you know, one full side of the colony. And then you just peel off the backing, put that on, get it in place, just get wrap all the way around the entire colony with that duct tape. And that will seal everything up from kind of the damage you did to the, the propolis seal that was in place. So that's kind of a little bit of a, a kind of workaround for that. But in general, like I said, there's not a whole lot that you can do to help them out. Let's go ahead and, and kind of do like a um, bottom-up kind of approach. So my colonies, because of, you know, where I am, what I like, you know, mine are pretty commonly going to be sitting on pallets. So they're going to be, you know, four or five inches off the ground. Um, sometimes I have, you know, I have a few of them that are on regular hive stands. You know, those are about a foot off the ground. It doesn't really matter. You, you know, don't put them right on the ground. Uh, you know, you don't want to make it easier for anything to get in there that might want to get in there. So get some kind of elevation to them. Plus, you don't want that radiant cooling kind of coming in off the ground and, and making them any colder than they already might be. But with that bottom board, you know, I've, we've talked about this before in the summertime. I like the, the screened bottom boards. Um, you know, they provide more ventilation. I think the bees are a little happier with it. I do both. You know, I keep solid bottom board colonies. I use screen bottom boards and I mix it up just based on what I have available. So if you don't have screen bottom boards, you can't afford to buy them, can't afford to make them, then use the solid bottom boards, right? When a bee is up in a tree, they don't have a vented tree that they can use, right? So, you know, if you have it and you can do it, I think they're happier. But the reality is that I have bees bearding, you know, out the front in the summertime with or without a screen bottom board. So, you know, don't, don't beat yourself up if you don't have those. The ones that I bought, they have underneath of them, they have a kind of little rail system where you can slide a piece of wood or a board or, or something into those. That's what I did this year. Now, every year in the past, I've always taken my screen boards out, put solid boards in for the winter, and that was it. This year, I just didn't get to it. I was trying to get all my colonies moved from my house down to the apiary, and I, just, I, I was late in getting that done, and... I just, I didn't want to mess with it. I didn't want to disturb them because it was later than I wanted it to be. They were all, you know, the, the everything was propolized shut. They were ready to settle in for the winter, and I just didn't want to mess with it. So I would say if you're not going to, you know, use a solid bottom board, if you are using a screened board, find some way to block that screened section. If it has that rail, slide a board or something in there to, to prevent that cold air from coming right up into the bottom of the colony. You know, if it doesn't have those rails, fabricate something yourself. You know, be creative. Come up with some way to keep that closed on the bottom. That way that cold air is not coming in. Now, as far as your configuration to overwinter, let's talk about kind of a typical generic configuration that a lot of people do. And this would be a deep brood chamber with another deep on top of that, queen excluder, and then one or more honey supers. There are a lot of people professional and hobbyist who have kind of settled in on a configuration that works for them. And this is going to be heavily dictated based on where you live. I have had colonies over winter in Virginia on three or four frames of honey. I mean like really small colonies where I thought 
there is no way they're going to make it through the winter. They're just they're not going to make it. But I was not going to steal from another, you know, colony in order to help boost this one up. I, that wasn't going to happen. I need to make sure that the ones who worked hardest and are ready to go, they're going to make it. So I just said, hey, you know, we'll, we'll let it go. We'll see what happens. And, you know, I caught a mild winter, and they were fine, just a couple of frames. I had a couple of seasons, and there's one I've mentioned to you folks before, where we had like three weeks straight in the teens and 20s, which, you know, for a lot of people in the country, they're probably laughing, thinking like, man, I'd love to have that. But um, where I live, that's an anomaly. So I think that I had I had colonies that had, you know, 40, 50 pounds of honey that either didn't make it or barely made it. I had some that were doing really well. They looked great when they came out in January. And we had a, you know, it started warming up early in February. And things were looking good. And it was kind of like they had used the last of their winter resources to start rearing brood. And then we had this three or four week cold spell. And I lost colonies. I lost a bunch of them that year. I mean, I went out and I opened up colonies that had that were dead with five and six frames of brood laid up. I couldn't believe it. I mean, they were just, they went gangbusters during that warm spell. And then they didn't have enough bees left in the colony to keep that brood warm. And they had used up the last of their resources, you know, that they overwintered with. And I lost them. And I lost a few of them that year. So how much honey that your bees are going to need to have, you know, socked away for the winter will definitely vary based on where you live. But, you know, that being said, one configuration that I really like is like a single deep. You know, one single deep with, you know, 10 frames and, you know, the bees will figure it out, right? They'll put things however they want to put them in there. I, I don't recommend doing late adjustments to this unless you put them in the exact way that bees will typically arrange their colonies. So as an example, let's say that you had two deeps and you want to consolidate everything down into a single deep. Well, they don't need brood. Queen is still going to lay a couple of eggs. A lot of people think that the queen just completely shuts down in the wintertime. She will lay a few eggs here and there. It's just nowhere near, you know, production kind of capacity. But colony doesn't need brood space in the wintertime. It it needs honey to feed everybody with, but they actually do still use comb space as well as far as getting in and and packing everyone in and keeping everybody warm. But if you were making any moves or any changes to the, kind of the alignment of things, I mean, in general, your brood frames are going to be in the middle, and then you're going to have, you know, pollen frames next to that, and, and then you start getting to nectar honey, everything towards the outsides. So if you're going to make a change that might throw off, you know, their way of doing things. You're going to want to do that earlier, you know, in the like late summer, early winter or early fall before they start kind of slowing down for the season in case they need to move anything where they want it to be. But in general, that single, you know, deep brood chamber by itself, that works well for some people. Again, it depends on um, whether or not you've needed to supplemental feed them, what the weight of the whole colony is. Um, that's one thing I would recommend as you progress through your beekeeping is getting to a point where you're weighing your colonies at the end of the year. So as you're getting ready to go into the winter and you make some notes and you say, okay, I've got four hives and, you know, colony one weighed, you know, 40 pounds. Colony two was 60 pounds. Colony three was 55 pounds. And then you get to the spring, you see which ones make it, which ones don't, what challenges they have. This is where documentation becomes really important and, and really kind of critical so that you'll be able to determine what the bees need, you know, in your area. 
Now, as popular as that single kind of brew chamber overwintering is for a lot of people, it, it still makes me nervous. I still don't completely like the layout of things. I really like the idea of having, you know, maybe three or four brood slash kind of pollen frames in the middle and then pushing honey to the left and right and having honey all above that. You know, I like the two deep overwintering. I think that's a good way to go if you're on that standard, you know, eight or 10 frame Langstroth kind of approach. That's, I think that's a great way to go. Uh, my still favorite hands down without a doubt method is the one I've described many times with the deep divided down the middle, you know, two colonies, one on the left, one on the right, four frames left, four frames right. And then you stack four frame nukes on top of those. And then at the very top of that, you know, you would have a queen excluder followed by one or more honey supers if needed, but really they should not need that. So there's something really, really neat that we're going to talk about next about this configuration. Hey everyone, thank you for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable. In order to help keep the lights on, we do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there and I appreciate you. We will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, everyone, welcome back and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official. So just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. Okay, so here's what makes this super cool. If you were able to take a look transparently kind of through a beehive, and you could see the frames as they're stacked inside you would see one cluster of bees right in the middle, right? And that cluster will tend to move up and out as it needs to to stay together to get access to the honey that the bees need to, to nourish themselves throughout the winter. Now, here is where it gets really cool. When you have this double colony setup that I was talking about, they will actually form one big cluster in the middle. 
So remember, we have, visualize this with me if you can, four frames over four over four. So you have 12 frames vertically. Now, normally right in the middle of that space is where those bees would be you know, throughout the winter. Same thing on the other side, but that's not the way it works. These bees can basically feel the warmth of the other colony kind of near them, and they just know like, hey, this wall is kind of warm. Let's move to that wall. And it's, it's like they have this free insulation that comes with the hive. It's just something that the bees instinctively know. They feel that there's extra warmth or heat coming from that side. They kind of gravitate towards it. So now that dividing line, that middle wall becomes the center of the cluster. And it's really, really cool. I, I've seen some, some pictures of it before. If I can, I'll try to find a way to show them to you, whether I incorporate it into a video or, or something like that. But we'll, we'll try to track that down. But using those double new kind of um, approaches, it's, it's just so rock solid for so many reasons. Okay, so we talked about the bottom board, making sure things are good there. Now, another thing that you can do, and this is not, this is certainly not anything that's mandatory, but I know this is common in different parts of the country, especially in your cooler climates. A lot of people kind of take winterization to the next level. They will take roofing paper, like, you know, black roofing paper from the, uh, you know, from your local hardware store, and they will wrap the entire hive in the black roofing paper. So the idea kind of being that the, the you know, that it'll absorb more of the heat being the darker color, but it also helps to seal up any holes or any cracks or anything, any imperfections in the wood that, that maybe the bees, for whatever reason, didn't propolize shut. Uh, that approach is very common in many parts of the country. So that's something else you can do to kind of take it to the next level. Now, another thing to keep in mind, too, though, and like I've mentioned before, this is very, you know, locality-based, right? So if you're down in the south, you know, there are, there are parts of the country that really, or, or parts of the world as well, where you, you really don't need to winterize. I had a discussion with somebody the other day in a different part of the world. I'm not going to go into too much detail here right now. I'll come back to it in a minute, I promise. But um, they don't they don't winterize their colonies because they have activity year round. Same kind of thing uh, when you're looking down in parts of Florida. Yeah, we you know we get colder weather that comes through a lot of the you know southern Florida and everything. But I think recently they've had some cold spells, so you're going to have a few days where the bees just aren't out. They're not you know foraging. They're not working. So they're not going to need to take all of the measures that the rest of us, particularly those up north, are going to need to do. Now, the rest of the colony itself is really, you're not going to need to do a lot with the other components of the hive for the most part. Like I told you about, you know, the upper vented piece of my hive, you know, setup that I use. You know, normally that piece is on there year-round providing ventilation. In the wintertime, I drop a piece of foam in there and I'm done. I still have an inner cover. I still have an outer cover. There are some people I've seen put a little bit of a spacer, um, and it can be anything, just a piece of wood, just something to, to provide a little bit of lift at the very top um, between the inner cover and the outer cover, just to let a little bit of air flow. Like I said before, you just want to keep the air moving. I think it was my very first year beekeeping, and I think I, you know, I had the two colonies. The one of them died. I didn't know why. The other one, when I opened it up, the inside of the inner cover it was soaking wet. It was really, really heavy, and it was covered in, in like a mildew. It was really, really gross. I, but the bees made it through. They continued on. I actually had that colony for a couple more years. They were super strong and great, but I almost killed them. So not good. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about here is some supplemental feeding. This is something that a lot of people uh, like to do. There's a lot of debate on this. Um, for me, I do all of my feeding 
in the, of course, I feed during the dearth, but in the fall, I'm, I'm checking my hives, and some of them are going to get weighed, and some of them I just kind of eye it up. I'm, when you've done it for an, long enough, you kind of get a rough ballpark feel for how heavy you know, certain hives should be. Like if I'm, if I'm doing nukes or if I have larger colonies, I can kind of just lift them up and get a, get a good ballpark for them. Now, as I start working with USDA and I start doing things in a little bit more of a formal fashion here, I need to be a little bit better about that. But all of my supplemental feeding is, you know, sugar syrup, two-to-one concentration year-round. Now, you know, some people will say, well, in the springtime, you should do a one-to-one concentration because it produces this and this and this. And, and two-to-one should only be used when you want to do that. Uh, okay, I do two-to-one all the time. And it's not because I'm an expert in figuring out when to do what. It's simply Michael Palmer, the gentleman I referenced earlier from French Hill Apiary up in Vermont, he made a good case for it. He was basically saying, like, look, you have a container. You're filling it with sugar syrup. The bees are drinking it. Why would you want to go back and have to fill it a second time? They're going to take it all in. They're going to take it all back, and they're going to do what they do. So he's much more of an expert in that space and has done a lot more research on it than I have. So a few years ago, I went to doing two-to-one year-round, and that's all I do, and it seems to work fine. But I don't do that after, like, probably, you know, mid to late September. By the time we get to October, that's it. I'm done. And that's going to vary based on where you are. There's parts up north where if you're, you're, you know, you're probably finishing that up by the end of August, maybe the first week of September, because, you know, you've got snow coming soon. The bees need to take up the sugar syrup, you know, take it back to the hive, put it away, store it. It needs time to cure. It needs time for that moisture content to be reduced before it can be capped. So the, you don't want to be doing this in, you know, too late in the season. Now, I've mentioned this before. We'll talk about it again, the whole thing with pollen patties and different supplements. I just, I'm, I'm neutral on it. If it makes you feel better, if you've had some measurable results with it, if you have a friend or colleague or someone who says, oh, my gosh, if you're using these patties, man, they're great, they're perfect, you know. If you want to use them, I'm not going to tell you not to. I just, I have not seen a measurable improvement in the health or livelihood or well-being of my bees using pollen patties. I have some couple of them. I think I have just a few left over that I had from a couple years ago when I had bought them. But, you know, I'll throw them in in the spring. You know, the first time I open up a colony in the spring, I'll throw one in there because it gives them a little bit of something to kind of chew on before I'm putting sugar syrup in there, which um, honestly, I even I kind of even stopped doing that uh, unless I were for some reason had to start a new colony earlier than I wanted to, maybe I would supplemental feed. Generally in the spring, when the nectar's out, it's out and they're running. They don't need anything from me. But pollen patties to me, I just am not seeing a lot of value in it for overwintering. Now, I think if you have a colony, you're starting a new colony, you're doing a split, you're using package bees. You know, package bees is where I think it could represent some some pretty good value for you, right? Because you have a colony that's brand new. They've got no comb. They've got nothing. And you're dropping them in a box. And I've had this happen before. You drop them in a box, you get them all set up, and then it rains for three or four days. They've got no stored anything, right? That's why whenever I start a new colony, I always put sugar syrup inside the colony. Drop a pollen patty in there, not going to hurt. But for overwintering, I don't do it, right? I've put them in before. I go in the next season, and what happened, What do I do in the spring? In the spring, I'm there with my hive tool, and I'm scraping off a bunch of dried up, you know, pollen patty. Did they eat some of it? Absolutely. Did they eat it all? No. 
Did they still have honey left over? Yes. So I don't know. If you wanted to give it a shot, give it a shot. If you if you have some great results with it, by all means, let me know. Shoot me an email and say, hey, Jeff, man, like we've been using XYZ brand for 20 years. Haven't lost a colony since then. Awesome. You know, I think I can kind of make the same case that I've been using a better ventilation system in my colonies for the past decade, and I'm not losing hives at all. You know, with that combined with good a good Varroa treatment schedule, you know, keeping an eye on the hive beetles that we have here, and and wax moth keeping them in control, and I'm we're good. The other thing I want to talk about is crystallized sugar. Now I know somebody's going to pick a fight with me on this one. I, like I know I'm going to get emails and people are going to tell me I have no idea what I'm talking about. I see people who are people I like, people I think are really good beekeepers, people who run good businesses. And they will tell you about how you can put granulated sugar into a colony for like emergency feeding in the wintertime. So I did a little bit of research on this one. And I've actually, I've got somebody in mind. I'm not going to mention her name right now because I don't want to like, I don't want to surprise her or have her, have somebody reach out to her and be like, hey, I heard you were going to be on this podcast. But I am going to ping her and reach out to her to see if she can come and talk to us about this. But it is my understanding that what has to happen here with crystallized sugar, right? Because keep in mind, there's nowhere in nature where a bee flies around and says, oh, wow, look, crystallized sugar, how awesome is this? And they pick that up and bring it back to the colony. It doesn't happen. What they have to do effectively is kind of stick their tongue onto the, the sugar, moisten the sugar first to kind of get it to dissolve before they can actually start to take some of it in. So the research I did turned up that it's getting about a 50% effectiveness for the amount of energy they have to burn for what they get out of it. Is that better than nothing? Yes. But I would still step back and ask the question, if your colony is in that dire of a situation at the end of the season anyway, whose fault is that? What happened here? Did you not do everything you needed to do to take care of that colony throughout the summer? Is, does the colony have bad genetics? Are, are, you like, are they on life support? Should you really not be doing this anyway? I think that there are some other questions to ask, but I, without a doubt, I don't put crystallized sugar into my colonies. Now, one potential argument to make might be like, well, yeah, but we put it up in the top, and then the moisture from the condensation drips down on it and kind of helps to break out. I don't know. Maybe you can try to make that case. I don't do it. I think if you have a good, strong colony, and if you needed to supplemental feed them and they packed away that sugar syrup and they've got everything that they did all summer long put away, I think you're fine. I don't like the crystallized sugar. That's just me. All right, folks. So we covered a lot of stuff today. Um, you know, I feel like this is kind of one of those topics where I almost need to be talking back and forth, you know, where somebody says, well, hey, what about this? And, and we can kind of almost have a dialogue about it and ask some specific questions because, there's a lot of moving parts to it, but again, it's very simple, right? You keep the hive ventilated. You make, you take care of the bees all summer long, supplemental feed at the end of the year if you need to, help them get built up, and, you know, to keep an eye on them, right? There are some things around hive placement that are kind of important, but that's more of a spring thing, right? When you're setting things up in the spring, think about, hey, is the entrance to this hive facing the west or the northwest where all of my storms and wind come from? right? Things like that. But if you've ta done your due diligence, you've taken your time early in the spring, overwintering really just comes down to keeping the bees dry and keeping them ventilated. But when I mentioned the idea of this two-way communication, it kind of leads me into something else. Um, I was a beta tester 
for an application called Wisdom, W-I-S-D-O-M. Now, full disclosure here, I played around with it a little bit during the beta. It's live now, and I'm not using it yet. And the reason I'm not using it yet is because I haven't had a chance to announce it to all of you. What I'm going to start doing with this is I'm going to start getting into a regular routine where probably, you know, we'll say for now maybe once a week, and then it might get to a point where, you know, particularly like during the season, maybe it's almost a daily thing or a couple times a week where, you know, get on at a certain time of day and uh, it allows you to have a real-time conversation. So, uh, you know, we launched the app. Let's say, for example, I said, okay, you know, all summer long during my lunch break at noon, you know, I'm going to come in and talk for a half hour. And I can come in and say, you know, hey, everybody, this is what I'm seeing today. This is what we're doing out in the yard. And then you actually have the opportunity as a listener to kind of push a button and it puts you in the queue. And then I can say, hey, John, how you doing? What's going on? You can be like, hey, what's up, man? And we can have a discussion and you have like a time limit that counts down. And when your time runs out, you know, it's like, all right, well, thanks a lot. You know, and that person moves off and the next person can come in. So I, I want to try this out. I want to check it out and see, um, you know, see if it's something that we can do, see if it makes sense, see if it, you know, people respond to it and, uh, and we'll kind of play it by ear. So it's listed under, uh, uh, you know, App Store, Google Play, and it's just uh, Sampsell, S-A-M-P-S-E-L-L, Farms, F-A-R-M-S. And you can find me on there. And like I said, within the next couple of weeks, we'll try to get into some kind of a rhythm and we can start having some dialogue and talking about different topics. And uh, we'll see how that goes. So the last thing I wanted to talk about here before I kind of wrap up for the, uh, for the episode is uh, I did a pretty cool interview. I was able to catch up with somebody in the industry, very innovative, doing some very, very cool things in the beekeeping world, and uh, got a chance to, to talk to him the other day. Had a really great conversation, and uh, I'm pretty excited about it. So the next episode is going to be, you know, my interview and discussion with this gentleman. I don't want to ruin it for next week, but uh, but this, you know, this podcast right now, we're getting this out. It is uh, Sunday, the 23rd of January, so we'll have this out tonight. But that podcast, I'm going to be re- releasing it um, Friday evening at 5 o'clock Eastern time. And uh, you can hear that whole interview. After that episode, we're going to be kind of moving into what we would call sort of season two, but I'm still going to just keep the episode counts as they are. And uh, the first thing we're going to hit on is suburban beekeeping. This is something that we talked about last year. It was on my to-do list for episodes. I've got two pages of notes. I've looked up some things around different cities' ordinances and and various kind of rules and other municipalities just to kind of get an idea of what, uh, you know, some rules and restrictions that are in place and things we can talk about with that. So that's going to be the follow-on episode. Beyond that, we're looking at things around like equipment maintenance, the things you should be doing in the off-season. So, for example, I've got a couple hundred hive bodies that I have to assemble and paint and get ready for, you know, for this coming spring, which is right around the corner. So those are a couple things we have teed up. But as always, feel free to reach out to me, Jeff, at beekeepingfornewbies.com. And uh, thank you so very much for listening, and we look forward to talking to everyone again real soon. Take care. Have a great day.
Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save good